The Dry Divide by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1963, Chapter 16, Home on the Dry Divide. Lord, all that uh, we get to enjoy on this earth is from you. You raise up governments, you set over them whom you will, and uh, you know the seasons. Uh, you arrange uh, for all that we get to enjoy and be sustained by. Thank you for giving us water and warmth for cool and for dry growing seasons, and harvesting seasons. It's fun to read about this harvesting, so I pray that uh, all who hear this will enjoy the story of, of getting the grain to the elevators. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after our first big day of hauling, Judy and I sat up late, figuring out the exact schedules, writing a copy for each driver, and making entries of the day's business in our books. With our hauls being eight miles from the Hudson Place and five from DeMay's, our day's hauling figured out at one and a half cents a bushel per mile to $228.15. That seemed a lot of money to earn in a single day, but we couldn't be sure there was any profit in it. My cost for wages for my own crew that day had been $70. There had been another $43 for hired drivers and teams, and the grub and horse feed would amount to another $25, leaving a balance of only $90.15. Then, too, I was already in debt $2,606 for horses, harness, wagons, repair materials, supplies, and groceries, as well as $840 that had piled up for wages since the last day of harvest. It didn't take much figuring to show that we'd have to get in a bit over 38 days of hauling at that rate for me to get myself out of debt. I could see only two bright spots, and one that wasn't so bright. The bright ones? were that there was still one load in the field that would have to be that would have been hauled on on any but our first day and that we'd use had to use no and we'd had no use for one of the rigs I'd hired. The rig and driver had cost me eleven dollars. With another one dollar and fifty cents for grub and horse feed and the load in the field would bring fourteen dollars and forty cents for hauling. The dark spot was that I lost money on hired rigs. With big slow horses, the best driver could do was to haul two 50-bushel loads eight miles in a day. The hauling brought in $12, and my cost was $12.50. Our second day went fully as well as our first one. I was away with my first load by quarter of seven. Took my second from Grandpa George's rig at 9.20, and was back at the Hudson Place by 11 o'clock. Somewhere along the way, I had passed every one of my drivers, and each one was exactly on schedule. With things going that smoothly, there was no need for running the wheels off the old Maxwell, and with me free for six hours in the middle of the day, there was no need of keeping Judy on the run. Except for taking us to the rigs in the morning and bringing us in at night, it was better for her to stay at the house and help her sister, particularly with a thrashing crew to feed as well as the rest of us. When we'd first come to the place, Doc had thought there would be another Hudson before harvest was over, but Judy had told me the baby wasn't due for another month at the earliest. Still, Mrs. Hudson was in no condition to be doing the cooking for 16 men while trying to care for five, take care of five small children. Until it was time to harness for my five o'clock trip, I carried out the dinner buckets, visited a few minutes with each driver as he ate, drove to the bluffs for a little visit with Bones, and to be sure all the wagons were rolling on schedule. Then got better acquainted with Ted Harmon and Grandpa George. The old man still couldn't figure out how we were getting 120 bush, bushel loads 
how we were getting 120 bushel loads through the gulches with our little Mustangs, but I didn't tell him. If I had, he'd have been positive that I'd lost my senses. On my trip to town, I stopped at each gulch to watch one of my drivers go through, and each one had done the trick as handily as if he'd done it all his life. My own horses pricked up their ears as we approached the brink of each gulch, then laid them back flat to their necks and raced through as though they had found as much thrilling as I did. That second evening, I never had to lay a hand on the black snake. By that time, my leaders were cornering nearly as well as any of the others, and neither shied nor danced when going through the town and into the elevator. It was just after 6.30 when I weighed my empty wagon out, and when the scaleman gave me my tally for the day, it told 2,417 bushels. I picked up both tote teams on my way home, leaving one at the DeMay place and taking the other on to the wagon circle on the Hudson place. When Judy picked me up, I took the black snake along and hung it back in the barn. That evening when Judy and I figured up and entered the th books, things looked a little better. We'd hauled 1,425 bushels from the Hudson Place and 992 for Dr. DeMay for a total earning of $245.40. So we had nearly $120 to help pay off the debts. By the third day, our hauling had settled so well into a pattern that there was no longer any need for my running back and forth to see that we kept on schedule. Every man knew the exact minute he was due to pull away from a thrashing rig, when he should reach the elevator, and when he should be back. Of course, the machines didn't turn out exactly the same number of bushels every hour, so some of our loads were a few bushels short and others a few over. <coughs> About all there was for me to do, besides delivering my three loads a day, was to lug out dinner buckets and ball. We're on our way to Heligoland when I passed one of my rigs on the road. By our fourth day, I felt sure enough that the business was going to be successful, that I dared go still further in debt, and Bones agreed with me enough to lend me another $1,000. That time, I didn't have to tell him what kind of note to make out, and he didn't object to making it out for 60 days, so long as the interest was 8%. Maybe it's the scotch blood of me, or maybe it's because I was born in New England, but it always hurts my feelings to see profits getting away. And profits were getting away in my hired teams. Besides, I knew from my first buying trips right where I could get more Mustangs just about as good as the ones I already had. I didn't need anything but very good for the tote, ho for tote horses since we didn't require a lot of extra pulling power for getting up the long grades, so fairly cheap horses would do as well as any others, just so they were willing they were willing pullers. At Oberlin, I could find almost any kind in conditions any, I could find almost any kind in condition of wagons and harnesses I wanted. By the end of the week, <clears throat> I'd invested the whole thousand, 400 for four good mustangs. 200 for four good enough tote horses, 200 more for four wagons that didn't need any rebuilding, $20 for coupler steel, and $180 for four sets of stout harness. <coughs> a boy who had been driving one of the hired rigs was real handy with a four-horse hitch and had nerve enough for running the gulches. I didn't think he should have as much as the men who had stuck by me all through the harvest, who had never drawn but a few dollars of their pay, and who had offered to let me use the rest of it. But when I told the boy I'd pay him $6 a day right through the, to the end of the hauling season, and whether or not we worked every day, he was glad to take the job. With 43 or four more days of hauling contracted ahead, I could save enough in team hire to pay for the new horses and wagons. And if I could keep the rig busy enough every day, hauling 120 bushel loads, it would make me nearly $600 in cash profits besides.
Each noon, when I took a driver his dinner bucket, I looked over his horses from hoofs to muzzles, watching for any sign of breakdown, any swelling of a leg that might indicate a strained tendon, any lump on a hock that might develop into a spavin or throw pin, or any excessive loss of weight. During harvest, we'd work the Hudson horses into the lean, hard toughness of well-trained racing thoroughbreds, and the week at pasture had put them into prime condition. But some of the new Mustangs had been carrying a few pounds of soft flesh when I'd bought them, and with 42 fast miles on the road every day, half of it under heavy load, they were losing weight faster than I liked. I couldn't be positive that part of the loss wasn't due to my feeding them the weedy wheat hay we'd cut from the borders of the fields, and I couldn't risk taking any unnecessary chances. Unless those horses were kept in tip-top shape, I'd be broke and out of business. Wheat, together with straw that has some sap left in it, isn't bad feed for horses doing ordinary work. But when they are being overworked, they should have feed strong enough to fully balance the energy they're spending. And in that country, nothing better than oats and third-cutting alfalfa hay could be found. At the beginning of my second week, I bought 50 bushels of oats and had a farmer from the valley bring us two loads of freshly cut alfalfa hay. From then on, each horse was fed 10 quarts of oats a day, together with as much hay as he could clean up, and was watered at least three times. That's a lot of food, actually. Although we had lots of days where we ran full tilt, we had others when we were a few loads short. Because a thrashing rig broke down for an hour or two, had to move from one field to another, or when we were finishing with one of the smaller jobs and starting another. Then we lost a couple of days because of rain. But most of the time, we had all the business we could handle. Within a week after we started hauling, our rigs and our battle rhythm were known throughout the whole surrounding country, and a day seldom passed without some farmer stopping me on the road or coming to see me uh, about hauling for him when he started his thrashing. Of course, I couldn't take any more big jobs, but I picked up enough fill-in hauling to give my horses all the work I dared to put them to. Originally, I thought that 40 to 42 miles a day would be as much as they could stand. But as they toughened and hardened, I raised the limit to 45, and they throve on it. Sometimes our jobs overlapped a bit, so I had to hire a few extra teams and drivers. But there was no profit in it, so I kept it down as much as I could. There was little doubt that the last week in August was the happiest Mrs. Hudson had ever had. By that time, we knew that her wheat was going to yield a good full 22 bushels to the acre, and the rain we'd had at the first of the month would assure her a corn crop. After we had talked had a talk with Bones and I'd shown him the tally slips, she bought a nice little house in town and a new Maxwell. Then she left the children with her folks and spent the whole week shopping for furniture and all the things she'd need for her new home, but she wouldn't leave the ranch until the thrashing had been finished. The day we talked with Bones, the landlord had called on Mrs. Hudson in the evening and offered to lease me the whole place for the next year. I didn't want the wheat land, but made a deal with him to lease the pasture and buildings. <clears throat> then I made a deal with Mrs. Hudson to harvest her corn crop in exchange for her cows and the old Maxwell. Mrs. Hudson wasn't going to move any of the junk furniture from the house, and I didn't want it either. But with fall coming on, I did, not, I did want to move my crew inside. So the next morning, I gave Judy a check for $200 and told her, I can't afford to spend a lot of money for furniture, but I'd like to fix the house up enough that we can, would be comfortable in it till the hauling season is over. Suppose you take a ride over to Oberlin and see what this will buy us in surplus army cots and a little decent secondhand furniture, <coughs> chairs, a table, and a couple of dressers with drawers enough to hold our clothes. Well, she said, this will be enough to get the stuff we'll need. 
but I don't know if I can find it all in one day. That's all right, I told her. Take as many days as you want. You won't have much time anyway, not with your sis away most of the time and thrashers to cook for. Judy took me at my word. As soon as she'd taken us to work each morning, she'd drive away, come back at noon to feed the thrashers and bring us our dinner buckets, then drive away for a couple of more hours. In the middle of the week, I asked her how she was getting along, but she didn't seem to want to talk about it and just said she hadn't had time to find the best bargains yet. <coughs> there had been several times when I'd needed the old Maxwell, so I told her, don't worry too much about getting the best bargains. I have an idea you can buy everything we need at the Army and Navy surplus store. They have folding chairs and tables and cots. Foot lockers would do as well as dressers, just so each one of us has some place to keep his clothes. You pick out the stuff, and I'll send a wagon over to haul it for you. Humph, she sniffed. They're robbers over to the Army-Navy store. $200 wouldn't go no place there. And besides, there's no sense getting the stuff out here until Sis moves into her new house. When do you reckon the thrashing will be finished? Saturday, I told her, unless there's a breakdown. You hauling Sunday, she asked. Not from Harmon's ring, I told, rig, I told her. It will take him all day Sunday to move to the North Divide, but Grandpa George will be thrashing, so Doc and I will haul from his rig. <coughs> Judy looked a bit bewildered for a few seconds, then asked, Couldn't somebody else do work in Doc's place? I was counting on him to help me Sunday. I didn't exactly like to have Judy pick Doc instead of me for helping her buy furniture. It wasn't that I was jealous, it just hurt my feelings a little bit, so I said, Okay, if you want Doc, you can have him. Paco and I can take care of the hauling. After that evening, I didn't mention furniture, her, furniture to her, and she didn't mention it to me either. It was after 4 o'clock on Saturday before Ted Harmon finished the thrashing on the Hudson Place. I took the last load to the elevator, <clears throat> waited for the operator to make up the final settlement statement, and went to meet Mrs. Hudson at the bank. She had been with Bones and her attorney all afternoon examining the claims outstanding against her. figuring the accumulated interest and writing the checks with which to pay them. After I checked the final elevator statement with my delivery slips, we figured up the thrashing and hauling and found that Mrs. Hudson's share of the wheat crop, after paying every penny she owed, would leave her nearly $14,000. My check for the hauling was $3,379, but after paying off my $2,000 note, it left me only $36.59 in my bank account that I didn't owe to my crew. <clears throat> and I still owed a $1,000 note for the last horses and wagon I'd bought. <clears throat> it was well after dark before we finished at the bank, and Mrs. Hudson went to her new home. I drove to Grandpa George's thrashing rig, and Judy came to pick me up by the time I'd unharnessed and fed my horses. Neither of us mentioned furniture on the way back to the house, and maybe I was a little bit stuffy. For the past three days, she'd been away somewhere with the Maxwell when I needed it badly, and three or four times I'd found her and Doc with her heads together. Of course, with Mrs. Hudson no longer at the ranch, Judy had to move back to her folks' house. After we'd finished entering the books that evening, I told her there was no need of her coming out before 8 o'clock the next morning, that I'd cook breakfast for Paco and myself, and that we'd ride saddle horses to the rig. With a day off, the rest of the crew would probably sleep late. She'd always put the books away and filled the tally slips and filed the tally slips when we finished. But that night, she left it for me to do and hurried away to the Maxwell. <clears throat> I heard the motor backfire and start within two minutes, but Judy didn't drive away until I'd finished the filing and blown out the lamp in the kitchen. She was just leaving the yard when I started for our camp, 
because in the starlight, I saw the dark outline of a man going around the corner of the barn. I knew from the size and shape that it was Doc. There was no reason he couldn't talk to Judy if he wanted to, or she to him, but for some reason it made me a bit edgy. I killed a few minutes by going to the corral, more to cool down than to see if the men had fed the horses that wouldn't be working the next day. By the time I reached the camp, Doc was rolled in his blanket and lying as still as if he'd been asleep for hours. I was a little slow about going to sleep that night, but not about waking up the next morning. The stars were just turning pale with the coming of the dawn when the clattering of the old Maxwell wakened me. There was no sense in getting up that early when we didn't need to be on the job till 6.30, but I shook Paco and we dressed. When we came around to the yard, an oblong of yellow light was streaming from the kitchen window, and for the first time I had ever heard her, Judy was singing as she cooked breakfast. From what I'd seen the night before, I had a pretty good idea why she was singing, and it didn't make me very happy. I don't think I said a word to Paco as we fed and watered the horses, then washed up for breakfast. I was even less happy when we went in to eat. Judy had breakfast on the table and was humming as she stowed grub into a paper sack. <clears throat> You'll have to make out with a cold lunch this noontime, she told me. I've got a lot of things to do today and won't have time to cook a hot dinner and fetch it to you. I didn't mind eating a cold lunch, and at any other time it wouldn't have bothered me a particle. But that morning it did. I felt as though I were being treated like a stepchild in my own house. I tried not to show it that I felt a bit grumpy, but I couldn't think of much to say during breakfast. <laughs> and I don't think we were at the table more than 10 minutes. Then, when I settled, saddled Kitten, she acted as ornery as I felt. I thought I'd handled her as carefully as always, but when I stepped into the saddle, she buck-jumped for a quarter mile before she'd quiet down. The whole day was one of those sour ones. Grandpa George was grouchy because his men had been to town Saturday night, got into the tangle foot, and were doing a poor job of pitching. The scale man at the elevator was peevish because he'd planned on having that Sunday off, and I must have let some of my own peevishness get through the reins to my horses. They snapped at each other all day, cornered, cornered like a bunch of half-broken colts, and spooked when there was no reason for it. It's kind of interesting because the animals do always receive the message from the person at the reins. It was 6.30 in sunset when I delivered my last load at the elevator, and 7.30 by the time Paco and I had driven our rigs home. When we drove into the yard, the place seemed deserted. There was no light in the house, and no one came to help us unharness. The only way I could account for it was that the whole crew had gone to town for the day, and that Judy hadn't even bothered to come back and cook supper for us. We unharnessed, put the horses into the corral, washed at the windmill, and went to the house to get ourselves something to eat. The kitchen door was closed, and there was a peculiar smell about it. And when I pushed it open, Judy sang out, Surprise! Surprise! Well, if ever a man was surprised, I was the one. <clears throat> and if ever a man was ashamed of himself for being a jealous, sulky fool, I was that one too. Just as Judy sang out, Doc lighted a lamp, and I could hardly believe I was looking into the same kitchen I had left so grumpily that morning. The whole, <laughs> the whole crew was standing there, spattered with paint and laughing at my bewilderment. And the only thing I could recognize <laughs> was the old cook stove. Even that had been blackened and polished till it sparkled. The walls, woodwork, and ceiling had been painted. The floor scrubbed with lye until it ble was bleached almost white. And there were checkered curtains hung at the windows. Eight solid oak chairs sat around a big table that was covered with a tablecloth. 
to match the curtains. And set with brightly patterned dishes and sparkling silverware. At the far end of the kitchen, there was an old-fashioned, ornate sideboard with more dishes showing through the glass-painted doors. Beside it, there was a work table with four new pine shelves bracketed to the wall above, each loaded with groceries, pots, and pans. Judy was fairly jumping with excitement, and the rest of the crew wasn't far from it. I'd barely had time to look around before she took my arm with one hand, the lamp with the other, and told me, Come see the rest of it, bud, but don't get against the paint. It's still kind of wet. When she led me through the doorway to the next room, I might have thought I was stepping into my grandmother's parlor. The walls and ceilings had been freshly papered, the woodwork painted, three braided rugs lay on the well-scrubbed floor, and the furniture was of about the same vintage as the sideboard in the kitchen. There was a horsehair sofa, <coughs> a Morris chair, two rockers, and a six-sided center table with a fringe-shaded round wick lamp hanging from the ceiling above. There wasn't no sense in having two bedrooms for only men, Judy told me, so we fixed this one up for a place to sit down after supper. It's getting dark early now and all. Then this other one's the bunkhouse. As she spoke, she opened the door to the third room and led me into it. It too had been freshly papered and painted. Two double bunks had been built against each side wall, and there was an old-fashioned dresser at each end of the room, one of them with a mirror, washbowl, and white pitcher. And at the center, there was a narrow table with another round wick lamp hanging above it and a chair at each end. Wouldn't we'd used both rooms for sleeping, without we'd used both rooms for sleeping, there wouldn't have been no place for seven cots, like you said I should get, Judy told me, as she led me to one of the bunks. But these will sleep real good, because I got springs for them and thick pads. She turned the blanket back to show me the bed, made up with sheets, a pillow, and pillowcase. For heaven's sakes, I asked, how did you folks get all this done in a single day? And where did you get the money to do it with? Stuff like this old furniture don't cost next to nothing if you look in the right places for it, Judy told me. Old folks put it in their attics when their kids grow up and they move into smaller houses. <clears throat> They're glad to get a couple of dollars out of it. That's how we had enough money for the springs and pads and lumber and stuff. Even at that, I can't see how you did it all in a single day, I said. Judy grinned and told me, we didn't. We've been working on it ever since Sis took the children down home, so they wouldn't blab and spoil the surprise. I've been having the big stuff fetched to our place down home when I bought it, and Bill and Jikas hauled it out last night when you was settling up with Sis and Bones at the bank. Then, with Gus and Lars not going to work till nearly noon, and Doc home by four, we've had plenty of time for carpentering and paper hanging. Of course, we couldn't do no painting till you left this morning, and I was scared we wouldn't get it all done before you come home tonight. How do you like it, bud? For some reason, my throat had swollen enough that I couldn't talk very well. But they all knew how happy I was. The only I knew how ashamed. How cool is that? They all loved to bless him and surprise him. He's done a good job taking care of everybody. All of you guys have a great rest of your day.